Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Elleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Daily Coast The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melissa's co-host, along with Kara Celaya, who is our guest co-host today. Our typical co-host, uh, Carrie Aliveld, is at Disneyland with her, oh, uh, with her, she? With, yeah, with her <laughs> girls. So uh, she gets some time off. And we get to carry the show today. So, Kara, thank you so much for joining me today in guest or in co-hosting. And uh, this is going to be a very good show because my political hero is going to be our guest. This is out of everybody we'll ever talk to. The Reverend Dr. William Barber is our guest. He is He's everything. We're going to talk a little bit about, more about all the things he's building in North Carolina. But if you are into whatever issue you're into, he's been working at it, too. I, I promise you. I promise you. I think you, he's the perfect he's example. I'm it. fangirling over here because I, I have not had the pleasure of getting to meet him yet. So this is like a very exciting time for me. But I think he's the perfect example of how the work that we do is always inherently intersectional. And he's living embodiment of that. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's it's interesting and maybe even a little bit ironic for me to talk about him as my hero and and one of my lifelong heroes just in, in you know, my entire life has been the uh, Archbishop Romero in El Salvador and his fight for poor people before the revolution, before uh, the 1980 civil war, 1979, 1980 civil war. And so it's, it's a little bit ironic because I'm actually an atheist and sort of my two big political heroes are both uh, men of faith. Yeah, you know, I I also am am a non-believer, and uh, I went to a a Jesuit school for grad school by choice because in Latin America there is this huge uh, like liberal movement that definitely started with the Jesuit Catholics in in Honduras. We're we're both Central American today hosting yes. the show, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, th- I think that really comes at the core of in the United States. So much of our civil rights movement really does come out of the church. And how that sort of plays into, you know, some of our conceptions or misconceptions of faith, because then there's also like the evangelical right and what they organize around. And it'll be interesting to to talk about this a little bit further. But everything from, you know, MLK to, you know, even even Malcolm X, so he was of the Muslim faith. Uh, faith yeah. played a very big part in uh, in their activism. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up white evangelicals because they are in a lot of ways perverting the idea of faith. I mean, if I if I was to read, you know, if the typical you know, black church sermon is actually quite inspiring, uplifting. It's about love and fellowship and community and, and the struggle for something greater. And yet I had this sort of reaction, this almost visceral reaction to talk about God and church that's very negative. And it's not because of them, it's because of white evangelicals and certain segments of the Catholic church as well, which is the church I grew up in that have sort of abandon those teachings of, of love and fellowship. And it's about exclusion. It's about hatred. It's about judging right. people for who they want to be. Mm-hmm. And 
we're even seeing uh, evidence recently, there's been a couple studies, that religiosity in the United States, church attendance is going down. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is because religion is now becoming partisan. Wow. Just like the, you know, the, the pandemic became partisan and mask wearing has been partisan. Like these are things that are corrupted by the right. Yeah. And they've gotten a lot of mileage out of it. I mean, it was a, from a political ploy, it has actually paid off great dividends for them. I'm not sure it's very smart for the, for the churches themselves. Right. Church attendance is going down. And it, it does create this, this, this perverse, negative sort of reaction amongst progressives towards what should be a, you know, teachings about love and, and fellowship. And I don't have to believe in God to appreciate a lot of those messages, just Absolutely. like, uh, you know, I, I can I can appreciate tenets of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. And it doesn't mean that I have to believe in the in the deity. Right. Right. And and also there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, to say about how a lot of our original governments as like as, as a species really do kind of come from from faith. But it's, it's also such a um, perverse thing for Republicans to corrupt because um, they are the ones who are constantly talking about how we are, you know, under God and faith and this, that and the other. But uh, there's there's some quote that I, I can't remember who to attribute it to that says that the most segregated hour in the United States is uh, Sunday mass. Because there are the white churches and then there are the black churches. And that is still very much the case, you know? And then now we also see a lot of like Latino churches. And that's also just a whole other uh, thing and a whole other way of of worshiping. But the Republicans claim to be these huge people who uh, are about family values and about the traditional faith. But at the same time, we're seeing all these voter suppression methods, especially in Georgia, we just saw Georgia has an amazing organizing effort called souls to the polls that happens on Sunday. And they do early voting, they, they, they drive their constituents, the black churches, and it is a huge time for especially in the south for um, black voters to get together in community and, and, and express their voice and go to the polls. And now we are seeing everywhere that early voting is being just slashed, especially on Sundays. And that's deliberate. That's intentional. So it's one of those things, you know, it's not so much about faith or or God. It's that the Republicans will find a way to make sure that people of color can't vote at whatever costs. And they will manipulate whatever message they need to manipulate to get their get i guess retain power because they're not getting new followers as far as i can no, see no in fact they're trying to lock in a institutional majority yeah by suppressing the popular majority and and, and then you, you know on top of all that which none of that is christian <laughs> none of that is love thy neighbor none of it right. none 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 of it right on top of that, you have the hypocrisy of, of the the way that the evangelical Christian white community attached themselves to Donald Trump, who may be quite literally the most morally repugnant human being in this country today. Everything that they claim to hate about libertine liberals, yeah, you know, the, the divorces and the multiple wives, and you know, he's had he's paid for quite a few abortions in his life. Right. I mean, of right. course he has. Uh, you know, sleeping with porn stars and like every everything that they supposedly hate, they just 
they just ignored it. And, and, and suddenly it was like, well, the Bible says that the prophet isn't perfect. I, I forget the exact <laughs> rationale, right? And there's a Bible, Bible verse where well, we're not asking for perfection. We're right. humans. Right. <laughs> we're asking for a basic level. He's not somebody who went to church. Mm-hmm. The one time he, you know, he cleared out Lafayette Square and walked, mm-hmm. a, you know, walked across and then held the Bible upside down. Okay. <laughs> the, and suddenly after really like losing their heads over somebody not saying, you know, uh, the word God in a presidential address, right. To go from that to a president who didn't go to church, didn't right. care about church, couldn't quote a Bible verse to save his life. Yeah. Uh, when he did, when he wrote it down for him, he said it wrong. Right. What was right. it? Second Corinthians, yes. <laughs> <laughs> two Corinthians, but he had, he had no clue. And, and, and they were able to just overlook that. And I still don't really understand why. Yeah. I don't get it. And you've been very much on the record recently saying that, uh, you know, we are, we can become the the party of, of family values as Democrats now, especially because, you know, f- for me, this wasn't a selling point for, but for a lot of Americans, it was Joe Biden is actually a man of faith. Like he is actually yeah. uh, a church going Catholic. You know, there's that iconic picture of him in when he was vice president, when they were taking down uh, bin Laden and he was holding a rosary and genuinely in prayer. And so it's just an interesting thing that, uh, we can no longer, the Republicans can no longer claim that they are the, I mean, not that they ever really could, but that message is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. I mean, they claimed it and the press sort of gave it to them. There was always this assumption that Republicans were the party of national security, lower taxes and family values, right? And family values speaking to that religiosity and that they were somehow anointed, but, you know, in godliness. And in, you know, and we've talked about it a lot and with Trump, they sort of threw everything out except lower taxes, right? The rich still got theirs. Yes. <laughs> the rich will always get theirs. And that's definitely something that uh, Dr. Um, Reverend Barber can speak to very eloquently. The, the rich will always get theirs, but they've used religion as a tool to sort of uh, control these masses of white poor people. Yeah. And they're not, they don't intend to deliver for them because that's really not what they're, that the party apparatus is focused on. They're focused on tax cuts. And that's the one thing that they would never surrender, that Donald Trump would never surrender, no matter how much the press tried to paint him as a populist. Yeah. And absolutely. hating on immigrants like us and our families does not make somebody a populist. So, Dr. Uh, the Reverend Dr. William Barber is uh, ready to join us. So let me introduce you. <laughs> I introduce him. So the Reverend is very, very busy. Uh, he's the president of Repairs of the Breach, an organization training religious leaders in activism, seeking a more just and equitable society, or as they put it, quote, advancing a moral agenda that uplifts our deepest constitutional and moral values of love, justice, and mercy. Man, I love that. Uh, the Reverend is also the architect of the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina, which is a campaign of sustained civil disobedience. He is co-chair of Unite the Poor, which organizes the Poor People's Campaign. And we're going to be talking a lot about that today. They're working on things like voting rights, a $15 minimum wage, and so on. And Reverend Dr. William Barber, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Can you see me well? We were trying to do a little light adjustment here. We can see you great. You're, okay, you I don't look want, fantastic. I'm in a room. 
I'm and you sound room. good too, too. All right. <laughs> no, you're all great. Well, Marco, so, thank you. And Carl, I was I, I was cheating now and listening into your uh, beginning. I just wanted to say right off the top, uh, it's not Trump. The Republican Party has long time ditched authentic Christianity and religion. <laughs> He's just a symptom. And I often tell people one thing's got to be careful in this moment. You know, when you get a cold or pneumonia and you sneeze, the sneeze is the symptom. The mucus is the symptom. It's not the problem. <laughs> I don't mean to describe the former president as a, as mucus, but oh, you can, I mean, you can. I was no, going to praise you for that. <laughs> but I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> and and then also, I think that um, you know, the media didn't just do this. It, it, you know, you know, slave master religion. That third good. I mean, that Frederick Douglass said, "I love the religion of Jesus, but I hate. The, I love the Christianity of Jesus, but I hate the religion of slave master." The the this religious position that Kevin Cruz talks about. I hope all your audience will read that book called One Nation Under God, The Purchasing of the American Pulpit. And he talks about how there was a reaction to the social gospel movement that produced the New Deal, really, and produced the first female labor secretary and pushed Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Sun Oil and others, they said, wait a minute, we, we, we can't. How, who has the moral authority? And somebody said, but the churches do, but they're preaching a social gospel. They said, well, how can we interrupt that? And they hired this guy out of, of um, uh, California. And he actually told him, if you give me enough money, I can produce an alternative kind of a kind of a quasi-Calvinism. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. So if you're good, you're middle class and rich. If you're bad, you're poor because it's your own fault. And I can purchase pulpits. And inside of 10 years, he had like 19,000 pulpits that they had purchased and given these crazy sermons to preach. And that was the that's the foundation from which the moral majority, the religious right, and all that stuff comes out for. It's the unholy connection between money and the purchasing of religion and, and to make religion the chaplain of the state as opposed to religion being the critic and the prophetic imagination within the state. That's uh wow. Um, and it sort of ties into a lot of like that prosperity gospel that is also. That's where it came from. Right. Okay. right. It, it's, it's different. See, it's all grows out of slave master religion. Because remember what slave master religion had to do. Slave master religion had to say. Uh, it was a way of justifying the unholy mm. and trying to make it unholy. So as, as Tiasha Coates has taught us, race is the son of racism. Racism is not the son of race. Racism, policy ways of, of, of treating people differently by their race came first, wanting to do the policies. Then race becomes the way you do it. So, for instance, in order to produce slavery, you had to have five things happening simultaneously. You had the evil economics, the means justifies the end, sick sociology that some people have to be up here and some people have to be down here. You had to have bad biology, that skin color, the differences determine brain size. So if you're black, you're brown, you're Asian, you're yellow, whatever, that determines a different brain size. And then fourth, you had to have a political pathology where like Chapman said, everything we did, the racism and slavery was under the table like a cobra waiting to strike, writing of the Constitution, everything was being determined. But the last thing you have to have in a society that dares to say uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all persons are created equal and die by their creator, in order to say that and then contradict it, you must have something called heretical ontology. 
And that is the thought that God intended the separation. God intended mm-hmm. the, the racism, the slavery, the over under. And that's that's what slave master religion did. And so what we have seen down through the years is a continuous kind of reinvention of that. Right. Yeah. And all of it is always a, an attempt to make religion the chaplain of the state as opposed to the critic of the state. And Donald Trump is the latest one to embrace it. But it's really not his fault. It's the fault of the Jerry Falwells, Junior and Senior, the Franklin Grahams, and all of these folk who claim to be evangelical. I'm an evangelical. But interesting what they claim to be, white evangelical. Well, white is more important than evangelical. (laughs) And what they do is, and, and, and lastly, all of them got their hype when they when they the first thing they were against was not gay people and not abortion they were against their private schools not getting federal money they were against desegregation mm-hmm. and they said that that, that that desegregation was anti-god and when and then later on they became all these other things but but what we find is they also at the end i wrote an article on this in the new yorker you have to watch the connection between them the ruling class and money Because it's an evangelicalism that at the end of the day, they support policies that hurt the poor and reward the rich, which, you know, kind of sounds like what Jesus stood up against in his day. (laughs) I mean, if you read the text, it should be pretty obvious which side is straying from from the teachings. Before you came, before you, you know, you came into the green room, uh, Reverend, uh, Kara and I were talking about how we are actually we're not believers and and what you're talking about is actually quite interesting because it fueled my my path towards atheism i was i was raised catholic and the more progressive i became the more disturbed i became with religion because it sort of seems you know it was hijacked by by these white evangelicals and i met you in Asheville, north carolina a few years ago i don't know if you remember but it was at the uh the saint james african methodist episcopal church in Asheville. Uh, with the Reverend Reverend Brent Edwards. And I sat in that church and I listened to sermons by by the Reverend Edwards and by you sitting in that incredible community and the the joy and the singing and the energy. And it's probably the closest I've ever come to sort of this notion of of God. And it was, even if we take away the, 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 you know, singular God, figure. It was spiritual. It was definitely yeah. a spiritual moment. And yeah. I, I don't think I'd ever experienced that. Definitely not yeah. any Catholic church growing up. Right. Yeah. And I wonder how different my, I would have been had I sort of grown up in that, in that, yeah. in that culture, in that atmosphere. And it gave me new appreciation, not for the activism that always had humongous appreciation uh-huh. for what you do in the activism, but more appreciation for that spiritual side. Yeah. And so I really appreciate you and the work you do. And that spiritual component, um, the black left has it. Uh, I don't think well, that's like, oh, you, oh, you disagree. <laughs> See, that's the other thing. This stuff is not, it's not that black and white, actually. So, for instance, in, in the abolition movement, you had white evangelicals like William Lloyd Garrison, who was as anti-slavery and willing to put his life on the line, just like Frederick Douglass. You had Harry Beecher Stowe, who was deeply Christian, willing to put her life on the line like Harriet Tubman. You had Sojourner Truth, who worked with the women's suffrage movement. Mother Jones was a person of deep faith. 
So it's not actually that black and white. Um, we try to sometimes say the black church. Well, remember now, Dr. King got put out of his denomination. We don't talk about that. He was put out of the church by the religious heads who said he was going too fast and needed to be slow. That's why he founded the SCLC. And that's why the Progressive Baptist Convention what was, was begun. And so what I think is more important, let's go back to that day in Asheville. You know, part of what it is when a true reading of Scripture, an authentic reading of Scripture in our deepest religious traditions actually teach us that there is no separation between spirituality and activism, that to be spiritual is to be active on the case side of the poor and the least of these. And in the, just the Bible itself, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, there are over 2000 scriptures that speak to how people of faith are supposed to care for the poor, the least of these women, children and the immigrant. 2,000 scriptures. If you went through the Bible and cut all of those texts out, the Bible would fall apart. Now, the problem is too often we've had too many people handling the Bible, praying over the Bible, putting that, laying hands and giving prayers on the Bible. But after they do that, they then pray P-R-E-Y on the very people that the Bible instructs us, that God instructs us, we should care about. So even when we say a person of personal faith like Biden, it, for me, I don't think he's a person of faith because he goes to church or building. Mm. See, I, I think that's that's counter what Jesus said. What makes one a person of faith? Jesus says, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was an immigrant, did you welcome me? Jesus' first sermon was, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because I preach good news to the poor. So one of my professors said, you can call your, your church going to spirituality, whatever you want to call it. But if it does not challenge the systems of oppression, then it is terribly suspect of being a spiritual experience. So at St. James, I think one thing you experienced, because you remember I told you, I'm an atheist too, if you want me to think that God is on the side of hating people, that God hates gay people, that God is for tax cuts for the wealthy, if God is for low wage, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> right? But what you experienced, remember why you were in and we were doing Moral Mondays. Yeah. And white folk in the mountain and black folk were joining together to stand against a legislature who claimed to be evangelical, but they were they were they were hurting people's water in the mountain. They were blocking living wages. They were blocking health care. They were cutting a billion dollars from public education. They were were uh, passing tax of uh, voter suppression laws. And black and white folk came together in that church, and the fervor was around, not just we were having a good time, but the fervor was around what united us was the fight. And the music and the prayers and the preaching all were a part of the fight. So it's actually not separated. For me, to be to love Jesus is to love justice. There's no separation. To be a person of spirituality means I can't be a person of indifference or a person of apathy or a person who just goes along to just get along. And that's been the challenge in American society on both sides, on, among black people, white people, brown people, native people. It's not so clear and cut, you know, like you got some black folk now that are running around with Franklin Graham and, 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 and <laughs> claiming there's no racism, black people. Now, you know, I know that one of the problems with that is, you know, a ventriloquist can always find a good dummy. And so, you know, the, the ventriloquists of white supremacy can always find people to, 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 to say what they say, but not look like they look. But at the end of the day, 
it's always a remnant. It's, and I want folks to remember that when Dr. King, for instance, and the welfare rights women and Cesar Chavez and, the, and other groups started the Poor People's Campaign to address the other America, and he announced that he was going to focus on three evils that he had always focused on, but more clear with poor folk, racism, poverty, militarism. The next morning after he preached that sermon at Riverside Church, one year exact to the day he was murdered, 150 newspapers wrote against him. Religious groups came out against him. Civil rights organizations, the NAACP and others, wrote resolutions against him. So when he was headed to the Poor People's Campaign, he was headed there with a remnant of people of different faith traditions and all. But what united them was clarity around militarism, poverty and racism were triune evils that robbed the human spirit and the human possibility of what ought to be our, quote unquote, God right. If you would. I, I would love to just because uh, you you went into a lot there, and I, I really kind of want to back up because we really hit the ground running. If you don't mind, Marcos, um, no please, uh, Reverend Doctor, I really wanted to know, and you touched on this for sure, a, a little bit more about your upbringing for our listeners who who might not be as familiar with you. And it it seems pretty obvious what called you to serve uh, both in church and, and in broader justice. But we would love to hear a little bit more of your, of your backstory of your origins. Story, if you will. Well, in quick nutshell, you know, my father and mother decided in 1963 that they would come back to the South. They were living in Indiana. My dad had been born in the South to help with desegregation. We didn't come back until 1966. But remember, that was 12 years after Brown and still in North Carolina, most systems had not desegregated. In fact, I went to segregated public school, kindergarten and first grade. I went in, in 68 and 69 and 70. So my parents, my father was a minister. He could have stayed in Indianapolis. He could have been one of the leading big time ministers, but he made a commitment of calling. He felt a call to come back to Eastern North Carolina and serve in rural Eastern North Carolina, what's still today the 13th poorest congressional district. Now I have over 500 years of preaching on my father's side of family, 300 on my mama's side of family. So naturally I ran, I didn't want to have nothing to do with preaching. I mean, when I first went to undergraduate school, I picked the school that had no requirements to take religious courses. And part of it was because I saw Marco some of the same things. You saw the hypocrisies. And I didn't and even though I was in a quote unquote black church, it was very conservative. They didn't they pushed my daddy out. They didn't believe in they believe, you know, we preach about heaven and it's going to be all right in the by and by. We maintain here. But it wasn't really clear about justice. And my father taught me, though, the scriptures that were clear that to serve Jesus is to love justice and to love all people, regardless of their race, their color, their sexuality. I went to school to go to law school and had an epiphany in my junior year and went home and told my father about it. And we went driving down the east coast of North Carolina along Manio Nag's head. And we had this conversation about whether I could do what I was called to do inside the church or outside of the church. And I had to get real clear with the difference between the fallacies of human, human, human beings and the rightness of the call for love, truth, and justice that our deepest religious traditions call us to. So I finished school, preached a trial sermon, what we call a trial sermon back then, went to seminary at Duke. And then I went to pastor in Martinsville, Virginia, 
a small town. But even there, I got confronted with ecological devastation and racism and whether and, and union rights. I, I never will forget going to a meeting where we were challenging the company that was denying people union. They would work in that country 30 years. Their retirement was $3 for every year they worked, no health care and a watch. And people would leave and die. So we started organizing for a union. And one morning we went to meet with the uh, the uh, uh, CEO said he would meet with us for breakfast. And he called all these ministers in. We met for breakfast. We were supposed to have a conversation about union rights. He start, He got up and said, Reverend so-and-so, how you like that parking lot that we gave so-and-so? Brother so-and-so, what about those choir robes and so-and-so? And then he said, okay, we're leaving. So I was young. I raised my hand and said, wait a minute, where are you going? We're going to have a conversation. He said, I just did. And the next day, almost every one of those clergy came out in the newspaper with a letter signed against the union. Wow. And I found myself again dealing with that remnant, right, of fighting. Lastly, I came, went on to, came back to North Carolina, pastor a church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, in what we call a tier three county, which is a very poor county. And I've been there. I served as president of the NAACP, the largest NAACP in the South State Conference, the second in the country, and then was called to this work in 2016. And it started with, a, I thought we were supposed to do a seven state tour. I used to tell people, I thought the Lord said seven states. We ended up doing 26 states in six months called the Mall Revival Tour. And I found that there was a deep hunger in the country that some people had been turned off by white evangelicalism, Americanity and all of this other stuff. But there was still a group of folk and some of them weren't people of faith per, per se, but they did agree with the deep teachings about truth and justice and caring for the least of these. And guess what? I come from a tradition that says, God has many that are not of this fold and that they're not against me. They must be for me. So we welcome all people, regardless of their faith traditions, into the repairs of the breach and the moral revival in the Poor People's Campaign. Wow, that's beautiful. A lot of the work that you're doing in, in all these organizations are really centered around, uh, obviously, economic uh, justice. Yeah. You know, fight for a $15 minimum wage, for, uh, for student debt relief, and so on. Voter, you know, fighting against voter suppression. What is that? What is the underlying thread that ties all that that entire fight together? Like, what is is there a single thread that you can say this is what all of this fight is about? Because there's so many disparate issues, and you know, as, as liberals, you know, <laughs> everybody has their issue, right? And there's so many. That's, that's is there a single thread? And I'm pretty sure that you probably have a good answer for this one. Well, you know, the silos are important. For us to work in our silos, voting rights, union rights, ecological rights. Um, but when we look at through history, our greatest movement in this country has happened when we've had moral fusion movements, like the moral fusion movement that came together after the Civil War that caused that birthed the first Reconstruction. Now, every Reconstruction was assassinated and murdered. They didn't just stop. But, you know, when black and white former slave freed person and poor whites came together after the Civil War. They changed the South and changed the country, brought us this 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. They changed constitutions all over the South. They guaranteed public education in states. They pushed for the equal protection clause. I mean, the uh, yeah, equal protection under the law in the Constitution. They were writing new labor laws, new criminal justice laws. They reshaped voting. They reshaped the courts. And then, of course, there was this redemption movement that decided to undermine all of that violently 
and and get by the way their theory was we must take America back just just so you know this is <laughs> this is in the 19th century and, and a president and a president who lost the popular vote in 1877 was their key linchpin Rutherford B Hayes to doing the take back and and so then you had the civil rights movement which was moral which was really not people say it was about just civil rights but even the march on Washington do you know it was that speech was not I have a dream. That wasn't the name title of that speech. That was the close. And that's what black preachers call a hoop. That was the ending. The speech was actually entitled Normalcy Never Again. And originally at that march, you know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to have a week of activities, sit ins and sit downs because they were calling for voting rights and a living wage. And labor rights. That's what the focus of the march was. A $2 minimum wage, which would be $15 today, and a civil rights act that would also include voting rights. Now, that's the part people don't talk about. So it was, it was, a, it was, it was a fusion of people and movement. Today, in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival that I co-chair with Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, we believe there are five interlocking injustices. Systemic racism, and that all racism from black folk to brown folk to Asian, even the collateral damage that happens to white people. S systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, militarization of our community, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. But the thread that holds it all together is that there are 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country before the pandemic, 8 million more since the pandemic. You think about that. That's 43 percent of this nation before the pandemic were poor and low wealth when you measure it the right way. Now, our current government way of measuring poverty, which is 50 some years outdated and it was wrong, it was too low when they did it, says if you make $12,800 a year, you're not poor. That's <laughs> foolishness. But the truth of the matter is there are 140 million people prior to the pandemic who make who, who are 400, who, who are poor or $400 away from economic disaster. Only 31% of North, um, of Americans are, uh, can afford a $1,000 emergency. Now, lastly, real quick, of that 140 million, over 50% of all our children, of that 140 million, 66 million are white, 26 million are black, but the 26 million black is 60.9% of black folk. And, th and the 66 million white are 30 percent of white people, 68 percent of Latinos, 68 percent of of um, indigenous people. And what we find is that those five interlocking injustices have to be addressed simultaneously to deal with the issue of poverty, beginning with restating and remeasuring poverty. And what it does, uh, Marcos, is. We go, we, 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 we are organizing in Appalachia and in Alabama. We're organizing in Kentucky with Kentucky mine workers and, and Kansas farmers. Last year on June 20, we had a virtual um, Mass Poor People's Assembly moral march on Washington because of COVID. 2.7 million people showed up. We've got 45 coordinating committees now in 45 states, 300 partners, over 2,000 clerics. Because when I went to Eastern Kentucky one time, and I was I put those five issues up on the board and I and I said to my brothers in Harlan County, let's stop for a minute and talk about racism. And I showed them racist voter suppression in Kentucky. Then I showed them a map of how who benefits from racist voter suppression. 
and then what the people that benefit from it vote for. They found out that the very people that sell them the lie about voter fraud and push voter suppression also vote against unions. Also vote against labor rights, also vote against uh, health care, which is needed in Harlan County. So I asked them the question, what do you think about that? And one of the guys stood up and said, well, damn, Reverend, we're being played against each other. I said, now, what are we going to do about that? And so we're, we're trying to say that poor and low wealth people make up 30 percent of the electorate now. That's the only place you can fundamentally shift power in this country. In 15 states, if poor and low wealth people vote between 1% in Michigan and 20 some and 19% in North Carolina, they can fundamentally outdistance the margin of victory of whoever is sitting in the United States Senate or the presidency or in the governorship in those states. Now, why don't poor that thing, why don't poor and low wealth people vote? Well, we did a study with um Columbia University professor, we found, number one, most people that make under $50,000 didn't vote for Trump. The lie is that poor folk put Trump in. That's not true. Most poor low wealth folk didn't vote. Secondly, the reason they didn't vote is, number one, they said because nobody ever talks about poverty. Nobody calls their name. Number two, voter suppression. And number three, they can't get off work. This past election, 55 percent of poor and low wealth people voted for Biden Harris we touched 3.7 million poor and low wealth infrequent voters in 10 states. Wow. So we've got to get a lot of, we got to rephrase. And I tell a lot of my liberal brothers and sisters, stop saying that poor folk are being fooled by Republicans. And not even by Republicans. I don't call them Republicans. My granddaddy was Republican, but he was an Abraham Lincoln, Eddie Roosevelt Republican. (laughs) They are, this not poor folk, most poor and low wealth folk in 2016, only 29 million of the 64 million poor and low wealth people voted. In 2020, 34 million voted. That still leaves 30, uh, uh, 30 million that did not vote. That's where we have to focus. But we can't focus on poverty if I, without dealing with systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy and this false moral narrative, but poverty and low wealth ties it all together. Uh, Reverend Doctor, tying into that, I would really love to hear where what your insight is with how the new White House and, and the Biden administration is succeeding and where they're failing in meeting the needs of people in poverty, people of color, people who are just disproportionately affected by systemic problems. Yeah, because, you know, Democrats and Republicans have failed the poor. Absolutely. Republicans have blamed the poor, saying it's their moral problem. And Democrats act like they can't say poverty. They got to say something like those trying to make it into the middle class. You know, some (laughs) folks are poor. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was talking, I was was on with a call yesterday, and they said they had talked to this messaging guru. And he said, we should not call people poor because it points to their deficit. I said, who told you that? He says, well, I studied. I said, well, you must not have studied poor people because the poor people that I'm around, they want somebody to say something about poverty and low wealth, and they don't see their poverty as their deficit. They see it as a deficit of the nation mm-hmm. because as, as um, Jeffrey Sachs and I talk all the time, the great economist, we don't have a scarcity of money, nor do we have a scarcity of ideas. We've got a scarcity of will. You know that last bill they just passed, the um, COVID relief bill? 
If they had kept $15 in there, 40% of poor and low wealth black folk would have been raised up out of poverty with one vote. Wow. One. If they had kept 15 in there, it would have affected 62 million people who work for less than $17 an hour and would have pumped $330 billion into the economy, particularly if they did the 15 immediately. So the issue is not scarcity. So when I when we met with the Biden administration's uh, planning team, we told we said to the president, he came to a, a gathering we had last year. We had a, about a million four one million four hundred thousand people. We invited Trump. Trump didn't come. So Biden came. He said these words to us. A theory ending poverty will not just be an aspiration, but a theory of change. That's the first time we had heard that. Since, since since the war on poverty, we said, OK, OK, what do you mean by that? So we met with Susan Rice and the other four and we and we didn't meet with them by ourselves. We took 35 people on a Zoom, the majority of them poor and low wealth people. And we let poor, and low wealth people present their own agenda. And they said to them with us, there are 14. We call them 14 points for the healing of nation. I won't go through all of them. But one of them was redoing how we measure poverty, infrastructure, but infrastructure that goes to the bottom and targets poor and low wealth communities first uh, and deals with ecological devastation. A living wage, guaranteed income, using the tax code to address poverty by doing things like child income tax credit permanently and and earned income tax credit permanently and and reversing the 2016 steal. That was the real steal that we should have stopped. The the stealing of all the tax dollars and giving it back to the wealthy so they could buy back their own stocks and health care and so forth and so on. Now, when we are seeing a number of those things coming out, now, we remain critical, even as we are supportive. We are so glad to see a president that, that's trying to tell the truth and has said the word poor. And in his first speech before Congress said, he said, he said, lifting uh, uh, from the middle up won't work. And from the top down, we must be from the bottom up. That's our language. That's the same thing the Pope has recently said. The Pope recently said that trickle down economics and neoliberalism were the kind of false <laughs> that is taking the world backwards. So so we are celebrating that, but we also are challenging him. We say, now we passed this one time COVID relief bill, okay? And you got child income tax credits in there, but you dropped off 15. Now you can't raise the children out of poverty if the parents are still in poverty. And plus you can't say that the child income tax credit will will end 50% of child poverty because it's not even permanent. It's just till December. So let's say we have the potential to do that. But also we're saying to him, you've got to recognize the systemic problems that have been exposed during COVID were there before COVID. COVID exposed them. And it's not one thing. And so this week, you're going to get the first of this. We're, we're going to be rolling out beginning tomorrow a resolution laying out an omnibus vision for the kind of omnibus policy that will produce a third reconstruction in this country to fully address poverty and low wealth. And we're going to say to America, if you all really want to do this, now, if you're ready to do this, it can be done. The special rapporteur at the UN did a study on the grossness of poverty in this country, but he also said it's not the scarcity, it's not the idea, it's the scarcity of moral will and motivation. And then we're going to organize around this resolution We're going to critique every piece of legislation from the perspective of the poor. 
We're going to have another virtual gathering on Washington, D.C. in June. And then we're announcing in June. I want to come back, Marcos, because you, you're my friend. All right. I'm going to tell you what I want. I want Daily Calls to help us organize for 365 days the biggest, most generationally transformative march on Washington. Poor people, low-wage worker, a mass assembly, and moral march on Washington, June 18, 2020. We're going to put a face on this. And we're not going to have a bunch of people talking for the poor. We're going to put that Kansas farmer on the stage with that black Kentucky fast food worker and that Kentucky miner and that black person from the Delta, Mississippi, on the stage with poor folk from uh, upstate Massachusetts. And we're going to register massively to vote. And we're going to push policy. Because if we don't have a third reconstruction, and I'm very serious about this, Talked to a lot of economists. Joseph, Joseph Stiglitz wrote a book called The Price of Inequality. You know, we often talk, well, how much will it cost? How much does it cost not to do this? We lose a trillion dollars a year from child poverty. A trillion dollars a year. We lose billions of dollars every year from the lack of wages. And we put 54 cents of every discretionary dollar into the war economy and less than 16 cents in infrastructure and health care and wages and education. So here's the question. How can a nation of this amount of wealth fundamentally have a, have a fruitful, strong democracy if we don't establish justice and promote the general welfare and 50%, nearly 50% of our people are poor and low wealth? You can't sustain that. That's a, that's a, that's a recipe for all kinds of, of upheaval. It can't be sustained. And so lastly, as um, as um, I, uh, my friend at MIT to come to me in a minute, he said, he said, uh, Otto Swammer, he said, we have to move from an ecosystem based economy uh, to an ecosystem based economy that understands we are all connected. And he said, the greatest problem with our e economic system as it is working now is the problem of consciousness and conscience. How do we allow 250,000 people a year, 750 people a day to die from poverty before the pandemic? Seven people die from vaping. We have a congressional hearing, White House meeting, everything from vaping. And 750 people, according to a study from Columbia University, before the pandemic were dying a day from poverty. The religion that I believe in, the God I believe in, the faith I believe in, would call that oppression, injustice, evil, wrong, sin, and a violation of fundamental human rights. Reverend, um, I love the framing of a third reconstruction, and I, Kara, Daily Coast is definitely going <laughs> to, we're going to be happy. We need to. you, Daily Coast. We need yeah. you. I'm in the D.C. area. I'm in. Let's go. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. I don't so, we're, <laughs> so we're out of time, but I want to give you a chance to let people know how they can join your efforts toward to, for the third reconstruction. Let me thank your audience. I, if I've not been clear, blame it on my head and not my heart. 
uh, as we say in the church, but go to www.breachrepairs.org, sign up for the newsletter, sign up for the tweet, sign up for all the social media. And then if you go to Repairs, it'll take you to the Poor People's Campaign, or you can go straight there, www.poorpeoplescampaign. On this coming Monday, we've got a big, massive National Moral Monday uh, talking about the, the, the filing of this major resolution. And then on June 21st, Monday, June 21st, you need to join us for the virtual mass poor people, low wage workers assembly, moral march on Washington and the launch for the 365 days of organizing to next year's in person, because we're going to change the narrative. We're going to put a face on this problem and we're going to build power and call this nation to the resolve that it's time for third reconstruction to fully address poverty and low wealth. Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, you said you're not going to forget Kara's promise. I heard your promise to come back on the show later this later this year. And so we're going to we're going to definitely come back asking you and, guys. To and and when I see you, I'm going to say, you remember the spirit made you say that now. What do you mean? I'm going to put that on the spirit. <laughs> I'm perfectly happy with that. Thank, thank you so very much. Bye bye. Uh. So, Kara, we, we, we actually had a list of questions we were going to ask them, remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely one of those people that, that you don't almost you don't need to prepare because he, he is prepared. He, he yeah. has such a clarity of purpose that it almost doesn't matter what we were going to ask him. <laughs> he was going to zero in on what became a sermon about the work that he's doing and it's incredible yeah. work. Uh, I... You know, we, we, when we first started this podcast, like we didn't ask people their, their origin story. And, and that's actually starting to become my favorite part of all our interviews, because who, who would have thought that his story included a I'm running as far away from the clergy as I possibly can. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that. I, Find me I, a college without a divinity program. I absolutely love that. And, you know, and, and I think that that's what makes him such an effective communicator, both in, in spiritual and secular spaces, because I don't think I've ever heard a man of God say, well, if that's their God, I'm an atheist, too. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, OK, it's so incredibly disarming, right? Yeah. If, if you yeah. are if you're conditioned to think of church and Jesus and God as tools of oppression, like he, he put it, which right. for the Christian right, they are. Mm-hmm. They are tools of oppression. And and when he says something like that, it's, it's just completely, okay, okay you <laughs> are not trying to oppress me. Like, you're meeting me. Right. I said I'm an atheist. You're going to declare yourself an atheist. We know you're not an atheist. But <laughs> the way he uses words and feelings and emotions to sort of say, like, no, I'm still with you. And yeah. we don't. I don't care if you believe it or not in my God. We are after that same purpose. And he was totally right. At that church in Asheville, um, the, that sense of spirituality I felt, it, it, was, it was one of shared common purpose. It's, we're all in this incredible fight, and I am so lucky to have these fellow travelers with me along for the ride, that I'm not by myself, that I, that I have a, a you know, I have support, and right. we're all supporting each other. And um, it, it, was, it was an amazing moment. And, you know, I, I used to call myself militantly atheist. I don't anymore because now I've, it's evolved to a, you know, live and let live. Yeah. 
Yeah. Don't use I, religion I, to oppress. You know, I actually, one of the first things we didn't touch on this because the Reverend was here, but one of the first things I organized around was I was, I worked for a nonprofit called the Secular Student Alliance. And we did a lot of separation of church and state stuff and like providing uh, usually LGBTQ uh, students with like resources when their families would disown them. And then the more mm. I got into that work, the more that me and the people who worked in, in that organization identified more with our activism than with our like secularism, you know? <laughs> and it's kind of the same thing with how he talked about faith where he's like, my activism is my faith. And I'm like, oh, that's so funny because my activism is my secularism, so to say. Um, and and it, it, it all is the same purpose, you know? Yeah, and, and I think purpose is sort of that, that bottom line is what are we fighting for? And I also really like, and he's right, when, when he taught, when I asked him to sort of pull in that thread, that common thread, it really comes into poverty, right? And, and by extension, it's, it's protecting, the system protects the rights of the wealthy, right? I mean, it, like we talked before he came on, it's no accident that the only thing that Donald Trump delivered on that sort of Republican, <laughs> you know, uh, family values, national defense, lower taxes. The only thing he delivered on was lower taxes because that's the only thing that they really care about. Right. That's what they're designed to protect. And I really wish I had more time because I would have asked them those white, poor evangelicals, is there a way to reach them or are they lost? I'm sure he would say they're not lost because he has that indomitable fighting spirit. He's not going to quit. He's going to go fighting for every possible. And that county he was talking about in Kentucky is actually an incredibly poor, very Trumpy, 80% yeah. Trump county uh, Republican in Appalachia. So he isn't afraid to go talk to these people and make this case that we're actually in this thing together. Mm -hmm. But it, it really, it, it comes down to, to economic justice. And from that flows everything else, right? Because nobody's putting in a toxic waste dump in a wealthy neighborhood. They're putting in poor people's neighborhood. Yeah, I, I was really taken by his um, his talking about the ecosystem, and he every chance that he could, he talked about the environmental the, the environmental component of our work and how that all has to do with uh, economic justice, that has to do with fairness, that has to do with you know spirituality, and it is also one of those things that takes me like a little bit back because I know faith as this thing that is anti science, right? And yes. he is there putting the the economic argument which is a lot of the economic argument that we hear um, from tribal groups and American indigenous groups, that they talk about the, the preservation of their culture and the ecosystem being essential to their traditions and, and to their beliefs. And so I, I just found it all so unbelievably delightful. I can't wait to go to his, um, to his rally. But I, I also want to say that I think that one of the things that when we talk a lot about systemic injustices, we usually tend to talk about what we consider violent, which is like police brutality, the prison industrial complex, you know, kids in cages, immigrate, that kind of stuff. But economic injustice is just as violent. Uh, someone not being able to have a home or someone not being able to provide health care for their children or any of that is it's violence. And until we can start talking about it in that way, I think we're going to continue to have this like theoretical fight about taxes, a thing that most people still don't understand. Whereas when you talk about someone's livelihood, I think it's a lot more interesting and we can really, I don't know, show show how terrible the Republicans are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if anybody, I, I really, really encourage that you sign up for all his organizations. 
email list, um, their SMS, that's that cell phone. So the website is breachrepairs.org, or you can go straight to the poorpeoplescampaign.org also goes to the same place, and that might be easier to remember, poorpeoplescampaign.org. You can also text the word MORAL to 66539. So MORAL to 66539, and that gets you on, uh, on the, the uh, cell phone text list. And I, I actually really, really encourage that you do so because he's building something that is – that is transcendental. It's, it's, I'm not kidding when I said that there's nobody I respect as much as, as the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber for the work that he's doing. And you all got to hear him, right? I mean, he is, it's, it's next level. <laughs> it's next level stuff. So that's all the time we have this week. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you, Kara, for guest co-hosting this it's week. It's been my that pleasure. Was, Awesome. Uh, thanks to Walter Einenkelt for producing the show. And thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. Thanks so much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.